Welcome to episode 202 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, uh, we're just doing the news roundup. We will have an interview with Glenn Gerstel, the general counsel of the National Security Agency, later in the week, and we'll release that as a separate episode. Uh, um, Thanks for joining us. Uh, we've got Alan Cohn, formerly the Assistant Secretary for Strategy at DHS, uh, uh, now at Steptoe & Johnson. Michael Mutek, uh, also at Steptoe, doing government contracts. Jamil Jaffer, who is the founder of the National Security Institute and an adjunct professor at George Mason University. Nicholas Weaver, who's a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer at the Computer Science Department there. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump in. Um, Surprising amount of activity on the Hill last week, uh, and probably the most fireworks were the uh, uh, Uber hearing uh, where Uber was accused of having uh, been approached by a fellow who had gained access to a lot of personal data on the system and who said, uh, I think you should pay me a bounty of $100,000. Uh, so in the end, that's what Uber did. They paid the $100,000 uh, as a bounty uh, uh, using their bug bounty provider. But uh, if you had listened to particularly the minority, but also the majority on the Senate uh, subcommittee, uh, the senators clearly thought this was highly suspicious, uh, uh, felt like ransom, felt like a cover-up that was being paid for. Those are the kinds of words that uh, were flung about. Uh, um, my sense is actually it is a close question, and I, uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, actually got on the uh, podcast and apologized for um, suggesting that Uber had done this wrong uh, because there was a New York Times article that explained just how close a call it was and how uh, uh, they had worked to pull this into their bug bounty program. Uh, uh, but that's not how the hearing went, uh, and uh, even Uber wasn't saying that because, of course, everybody who'd made these decisions has been fired. There's a new CEO, uh, and uh, uh, so Uber's stance at the hearing was the classic. When you get uh, in a bad storm on the hill, uh, uh, sometimes the best thing to do is to say, yes, sir, we're uh, wrong, we shouldn't have done that, we won't do it again, uh, we're putting procedures in place to prevent it, and that pretty much was Uber's stance. So, uh, it, uh, it was a uh, classic Washington hearing. Uh, it, uh, we were there uh, uh, with uh, Martin Mikos, who's been on the pro program uh, at uh, Hacker HackerOne, uh, um, and uh, uh, he and Katie Musoris and uh, representative of Consumers Union all pretty much had an easy ride, but uh, it was a tough, tough day for uh, for Uber. Whether anything. Well, we could make it tougher. <laughs> How is that? Uh, to the listeners here who work at the IRS, was there ever a 1099 filed? If not, why not? If so, 
did said recipient pay his taxes? Fair question. I, my bet is that was probably handled properly because in the end the payment was made through Hacker One as a, as a bounty. Uh, uh, they they treated him as a uh, uh, an authorized uh, uh, bounty uh, 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 bug bounty claimant. Um, and you know this is the, that that's why this is a close call. In in the real world, the bug bounties do get paid to people who don't tell you in advance that they're hacking your system and show up later and say, I found a hole in it. It it even gets uh, uh, paid to people who have uh, breached uh, your system and seen personally identifiable information. And usually I'm willing to bet that uh, if you have a bug bounty program and you encourage people to hack your system, no one treats those um, hackers as though they have... Um, caused a data breach. Uh, that's why this was, you know, on the line. Uh, the fact that it was all retroactive is is what makes it, you know, look less attractive. Uh, that plus the fact that Uber fired everybody involved uh, after their CEO changed. Uh, but my guess is... Has HackerOne Hacker actually confirmed that it was paid through them? That uh, I remember during the initial reporting... Hacker One was no comment, and there was no public uh, record of uh, bounty on that. Did they post public details I think, I think, on I think, bounty reward? Yeah, I think Uber did say that uh, Hacker One uh, paid the bounty. So, uh, and 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 obviously, most bug bounty programs um, want to. Uh, handle the tax aspects of the payments properly. So, uh, my guess is that uh, that at least is uh, is is not going to produce a problem. All right, I'd like to talk about Davos because we are the surely the only cyber law podcast that has its own Davos correspondence. Alan Cohn, uh, who goes to Davos every year right, uh, uh, and hangs out with the uh, the, uh, the the numerati um, and comes to understand what everybody is worried about in the. Uh, elite circles at Davos uh, on the theory that whatever they're worried about to the European Commission will start worrying about next year. Um, so, Alan, what happened at Davos that we all should know because it'll end up in our regulatory agendas? Boy, I'm concerned that that the that the, um, the condescension may have may have dripped too heavily on the microphone and might have damaged it there. So, um, yeah, no, it's strange. I mean, look, no, it's, it's fine. It, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, you know, this was only my third time attending, but what was interesting has been the trajectory since the first time I attended um, in uh, 2015, when this was an issue, but not a you know, it was one among many to this year where cybersecurity and, um, and data fraud and things of that nature were just seen as uh, absolutely one of the top risks um, that that industry and government needs to wrestle with. And so, you know, things that are not surprising, uh, that board members need to engage in this issue, that it's hard to find the right people, but you have to find them and you have to keep them. Um, you have to find the right technology. These were the kind, you know, these came up on every panel and kind of lurking in the background was, of course, the election hacking issue, right. both in the U.S. Uh, and in Europe. 
Um, I actually uh, moderated a panel on the in the open session, uh, which was fascinating, not because of anything that I did, but because we had the privilege of uh, of having Jim Snabe, the chairman of the board of Maersk. Uh, on the panel. Oh, and, and they got totally pwned. And he was, you know, very open and kind of told the story of what happened with NotPetya uh, and how their system was utterly wiped out. Hundreds of millions um, of dollars, I yeah, remember. 4,000 servers, 45,000 PCs, 2,500 applications all had to be rebuilt. Everything had to be taken offline. took 10 days to do this. And, of course, a Maersk ship docks in port you know, every 15 minutes somewhere around the world. Uh, and so but they were doing this. leaving port, yeah. probably. <laughs> but they, were, they were dispatching ships manually, wow, you know, during yeah. this period while they were trying to incrementally rebuild their system. And it was uh, it was really fascinating to uh, to hear that. We talked a lot about the need for um, greater cooperation between law enforcement uh, and industry. Um, and uh, and so I think there's a real recognition that no entity is going to be able to solve this by themselves. And I know, Stuart, you will not like this idea at all, um, but the forum is uh, ha- has uh, created and will be standing up a, uh, a global center for cybersecurity to try to help take on some of these issues. Um, and not to duplicate the efforts uh, of other entities, but I think to uh, to use the forum's pretty formidable uh, ability to convene leaders from industry uh, and government and academia and civil society uh, in a non-governmental setting to try to sit down and wrestle with these issues. I have every confidence that they can solve any problem that can be solved by the conventional wisdom plus a sense of entitlement. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Microsoft Ireland. The case is coming up, uh, going to be argued in a couple of weeks, and at the same time there is a very plausible uh, effort to moot the case before it's decided uh, with legislation. Now, getting legislation, standalone legislation passed is hard, but it looks as though this bill, the Cloud Act, has support from the Justice Department and the big uh, uh, cloud industry. There's one party missing from this consensus. Uh, uh, Jamil, what do you think of this, uh, the Cloud Act? Yeah, well, look, it's got the support of uh, four major senators who are the original, uh, you know, senators introducing it, Senator Hatch, Senator Graham, Senator Kuhn, Senator Whitehouse. Um, essentially, what it would do is it would allow uh, the government to compel uh, providers uh, subject to a warrant here in the United States to provide data to the government uh, wherever they hold it, regardless whether it's overseas or not, um, as long as they have a Sword Communications Act order. Um, and then at the same time, uh, it would permit those providers to uh, seek to quash or modify those orders if it violated foreign laws, and would allow the court to conduct a comedy analysis uh, in that context, and then for foreign nations that remove barriers to U.S. Uh, government requests for information, um, it would likewise provide some access for uh, those provider, those those countries' providers, uh, for those countries to obtain a process in the United States also under ECPA. And so, you know, it sort of trades off uh, sort of options, tries to address the localization issue uh, by uh, sort of allowing U.S., making clear that the U.S. government has access to that data overseas, while providing certain countries that meet certain requirements and enter into bilateral agreements with the United States have access to data here. So, you know, potentially fair trade uh, here in play uh, to be seen whether, uh, as you point out, you can get this through the Senate um, and head off this case uh, before it uh, before it uh, gets to set. So the 
big uh, element missing from this coalition is the privacy groups. The EFF has been vocal in opposing it, uh, um, and a number of other groups have, have opposed it as well. Uh, my... Um, Sense has been in the past, uh, the privacy groups couldn't do anything without the muscle of uh, Big Silicon Valley behind them. Uh, but when the uh, muscle was behind them, then they could get a lot. Uh, this is uh, one of the rare cases where the muscle is working against them. Uh, and at a time when Silicon Valley is not all that popular. So it'll be an interesting uh, debate, uh, uh, having the Justice Department in, uh, may make it a lot, a lot more likely that it passes because they're gonna want a fix for whatever comes out of the litigation in the Supreme Court, uh, uh, and they, in any event, want something that allows them to be more forthcoming, uh, as do the companies, uh, to governments that ask for assistance. Uh, so it'll be, uh, uh, interesting to watch how much clout the privacy groups can exercise in this, whether they can get people like uh, Senator Wyden ginned up enough to throw their bodies in front of the legislation. And if uh, a few people do that, then this goes into the same stew of unresolved uh, bills that, you know, everything else is in. Yeah, I do think, too, by the way, that we're going to see this trend increasing uh, because there is an increasing separation between the privacy groups and industry as industry realizes that sort of some of these more aggressive privacy efforts are contrary to their own business interests as, as they're now seeing with these data localization laws. So I think that we're going to see increasingly uh, this problem uh, for the privacy groups as they move forward. Yeah, I, I think that's probably especially right. Especially since... Go ahead. Especially since I think that the privacy groups are starting to wake up to the realization that... Um, if you care about privacy, industry is actually a greater threat than government because all government's doing is trying to get information that industry already has. Yeah, you're reigning on the business model for at least some of the uh, uh, privacy groups, which basically take industry money to raise privacy issues about things that industry doesn't like. Uh, and legitimate privacy interests, by and large, but they, uh, they are... Um, they're paid allies of, of industry, and those guys uh, can't turn their backs on on industry. Uh, folks like the ACLU and Epic and maybe EFF, who are funded in other ways, uh, have more freedom to uh, to cut the court. All right. Um, there's an interesting story from SecureWorks about uh, Fancy Bear, the GRU, um, trolling a number of government contractors uh, trying to get access to um, some of our most sophisticated uh, uh, research, weapons research. Uh, and SecureWorks suggested that uh, something like 40% of these high-value targets clicked on the links that were provided uh, or the attachments that were provided by the, the GRU, which means that they did some damn good uh, social engineering, uh, not surprising. Um, and it raises the question uh, that we've been struggling with for a while about just how much is the 
Defense Department going to make uh, defense contractors do to protect themselves from uh, sophisticated attacks? Michael, uh, uh, where do you think this latest story uh, leaves uh, the Defense Department and defense contractors, and what are contractors going to end up having to do? It does several things, Stuart. First of all, it does provide some confirmation that the concerns that the DOD has about its supply chain are valid. This was focused on personal emails. That's a soft target. And it's a who's who of government contractors, large and small. But it shows that there are weaknesses in the supply chain. And even though the DOD has taken the lead in many ways in addressing through default rules the protection of information, we're going to see more. And contractors understand this, particularly primes. They're becoming true believers, and primes are putting on their outward-looking supplier web portals information to help their subs understand the nature of the risk and what they have to do. But there is an expectation that would be a further development and evolution of some of the FAR mandates. One of the things that's interesting about this matter, and what we, what we know about it is that key workers were, were tricked into doing certain things, providing information. And that's an area that DSS has not addressed. The personal email is a soft target. We're likely to see increased requirements for training, and I, I think it's going to flow down right into the supply chain and require more uh, than a prime does, than a higher tier sub does, to address weaknesses in the supply chain, because any weakness in the supply chain can be a break in the chain, it can be a backdoor into information. Yeah, I I I I, I see that exactly, uh, uh, and of course you wouldn't have expected the uh, regulation of personal email, but of course if you don't regulate personal email security, then, of course, that's where the attackers are going to go. Um, one of the things, one of the complaints I'm hearing from uh, defense contractors is they've moved from doing counter-hacking or, or uh, trying to um, defeat the enemy to concentrating their resources on demonstrating compliance with particular standards, uh, and that never ends well. Uh, it, it, if you if you treat this as a compliance job and you say, "Have I done everything on the checklist?" You're bound to get uh, taken over because you're not thinking about the attacker as a living, breathing adversary. There is one of the concerns with the new requirements that came that that uh, hit us at the end of the year. The, um, the missed requirements for the, for protecting control and classified information. And, uh, it, it's essentially looking at a checklist for compliance. But what you have here is a situation that's not really covered well in that. And DSS doesn't cover this. They do well in, in what their function is. And they focus on, um, looking at and protecting classified U.S. technology, training industry, uh, in computer security. But here you have a different soft target, and it's going to require some forward-looking and thinking about how do we protect this information. Yep. Okay. Um, trying to finish up pretty quickly. Um, you know, after uh, Secretary 
Tillerson got rid of the cyber diplomacy office uh, that was headed by Chris Painter. There was a surprising amount of flack first from the House and then from the Senate. And I think the Senate uh, uh, flack seems to have led to a reconsideration and a letter saying uh, from Secretary Tillerson saying, don't worry, there will be a Bureau for Cyberspace that will be headed by an assistant secretary, still part of the Economic Bureau, uh, and there are people who think that's the wrong choice. Uh, um, Jamil, any thoughts on that? Well, look, I mean, I think the debate, obviously, about where to put this uh, office, well, one, it's worth going that they're now creating this new entity, uh, which, as you point out, came under political pressure. The administration had made the decision to take that position for an ambassadorial position with its own office and fold into uh, sort of the International Communications and Information Technology Office. Now they're actually doing the opposite. They're going to make an assistant secretary. They're going to take that coordinator, that old ambassador's job, fold it in along with the IT, sort of the CFIUS piece plus the uh, international radio uh, coordination and frequency coordination piece, combine that all into one office, the Cyberspace and Digital Economy Office. With the assistant secretary, as you point out, the big uh, point of contention now, assuming they go forward, um, is who's it going to report to. And I think uh, folks like Chris Painter, the former ambassador in the Obama administration for these issues, uh, argue it should be under political affairs because there are privacy and other issues that are associated with this, not just purely economic uh, engine sort of and, and, and deterrence and sort of national strategy issues, uh, which he's, of course, right about. Uh, but it also, I think, reflects a, a view of this administration uh, that the focus in cyber will be national security and economic security issues rather than sort of the privacy issues. And again, here you see, I think, that tension between sort of the, the privacy community, the current administration, I think, where they see their agenda going. Um, and we'll see how this all plays out. Yeah. Uh, look, there's no good place because this this uh, entity needs a foot in both camps. Um, and I have to say, I think secretaries ought to be able to have the organization that they want. And uh, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm having difficulty getting excited about where it ends up. Uh, but um, it'll be fun to watch and uh, we'll find out. Um, the other thing that uh, happened is this: the Justice Department de- deserves a lot of credit. They uh, busted several people in a massive Carter ring, uh, uh, and uh, uh, they didn't bust everybody, but they uh, they did a pretty good job of coordinated uh, international arrests. Uh, Jamil, any larger signi- significance to this other than the numbers? Look, I mean, the numbers are huge. As you point out, 36 individuals who are involved, involved in over $530 million in economic fraud with goals of, you know, getting up to $2.2 billion, 10,900 members of this forum. So the numbers are massive. Uh, taking this, uh, this website down, which uh, had the, had the temerity called itself the in-fraud organization, um, you know, is a, is a strong move for the Justice Department to demonstrate that it can, uh, reach out and get these guys, or at least indict them. Um, and so we'll see. And, you know, it's, it's also clear, I think, from the indictment that uh, they had some inside help. They were able to uh, get somebody on the inside to assist them because there's a name, uh, interesting, redacted out of uh, a lot of the pleading, the industrial complaint. And so it looks like, again, we all assume, but it looks like they had uh, they had uh, been able to flip somebody on the inside. That is always the best way to success. And so I think what we'll see going forward um, is uh, increasing concerns about these organizations, uh, about people inside and the threats they may pose to the organization itself. But, of course, like we saw with terrorist groups, that makes it harder for them to operate, and that's a good thing. And so I think this is a big step for the Justice Department, a strong move forward, and demonstrates uh, that they're finally making inroads in this space. So at the same time, 
um, people like Lori Love, who hacked the Pentagon uh, in the UK, have managed to beat extradition in the country that you'd expect to be most favorable to extradition. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, can you give us a quick version of what Lori Love's uh, latest victory means? Uh, I don't know from the legal standpoint because I don't know if the Crown can appeal, but it's actually a much uh, larger trend that um, that there seems to be a robust defense in the UK and Ireland that I derisively call the butt Aspie defense for hacking. And the most egregious case is actually Eric Marquez, who's in Ireland, who was the person behind the freedom hosting site that hosted gazillion different child porn sites. And it has bad follow-on effects, like the, the malware tech arrest in Vegas last year is starting to look more and more like a bad arrest. But why did the FBI hurry, it, hurry up and do it? Because he's a British citizen, and the British courts just basically seem to have this near ironclad defense against uh, extradition for a computer crime. Yeah, it's uh, but they, they, you know, I think the, the, they said it's because he's going to he could be end up in uh, a solitary and he's already depressed and he's got Aspergers and uh, that'll be really hard on him. But it was really kind of anti-Americanism and a a, a, uh, a striking unhappiness with the length of length of sentences here. Um, a, a, so I think you're right. Uh, the government is much better off grabbing people, even if it's a little early, than waiting to extradite them. Uh, he's going to be tried in in the UK if if uh, this uh, decision stands, but uh, that won't have the same deterrent effect. Um, all right, uh, one last uh, item I cannot. Uh, let this go without uh, uh, a tribute to John Perry Barlow, who uh, uh, died last week at the age of 70 of a heart attack. Uh, I knew him well. He got me started in my public speaking career uh, uh, by offering to uh, debate me and then making Washington University pay me whatever they were paying him. I, he was a delightful, charming, raffish uh, womanizing uh, um, uh, public figure. I mean, really, I, uh, he, he was—he he died about the right time because he was never going to be right for this era. Um, uh, I think he probably became a Grateful Dead lyricist so he could pick up women uh, because if that wasn't irresistible enough, he was also a cowboy. Uh, and uh, uh, I... I delighted in his company. He was a truly charming, generous fellow, uh, uh, and we sort of miss him. That's it. Uh, this has been episode 202 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Step 2 on Johnson. Thanks to Alan Cohn, Michael Mutek, Jamil Jaffer, and Nick Weaver. Uh, uh, please send us your suggestions for guests that we ought to interview, and we will send you a Cyber Law Podcast mug if they come on the show. Uh, as I said, this after, uh, uh, later this week, we will have Glenn Gerstel uh, on the program talking about a variety of things, including the inside story of the 702 reauthorization uh, uh, we're going to get Rob Strayer, who heads the office that is being fought over at the State Department, uh, uh, in to talk to us, and another State Department uh, and DHS 
alumni, uh, Nathan Sales, ambassador at large for counterterrorism at the State Department, talking about technology and its value uh, in the fight against counterterrorism. So lots of good stuff coming up. We hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.